You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture and all things related to it. New episodes are released daily. For more information, check out glossahouse.com and subscribe to our channels on Spotify and YouTube. Welcome and enjoy. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you doing? Hello, good. How are you? Doing all right. I hope so. Well, uh, we are in November. It's hard to believe this uh, this uh, semester is flying by. Before we know it, it will be American Thanksgiving, and then holiday, holy season, and uh, Christmas. So I hope and pray you're doing well. I'm going to go ahead and screen share, and I hope you feel... Um, like you're able to ask questions and let's raise your hand as we go through others might be joining us i think you can can you see my uh, one note i think yes. it's available can you see that here someone nod yes. say hello yes let me make sure it's recording the right screen can you see this here yes yeah Okay. I hope so. I just want to be recording the right um the right screen. So, yes. Okay, good. All right. Well, welcome back to uh the the Greek reading group. And uh, we're looking at Ephesians. We're at the end of chapter 4 and we're moving into chapter 5. And basically we're going to pick up at 5:1. But I kind of rushed through um, verse 32, 432, and just as a little way of uh, reminder, there is, um, Paul is concerned about anger. So in this section 425 to 32, we really have the mother load of the, of the first set of imperatives or commands. And Ephesians is structured, chapters one through three, the indicative, the kind of the facts of the gospel and Paul and his role in that and his praying for the recipients of the letter and laying out his understanding of the mystery, uh, what was revealed to him about Christ and who Christ is and how Christ relates to uh, the nations. Um, and bringing together Jew and Gentile, the, the, the Judeans and the Israel, historic people of Israel, bringing them uh, together with the nations into one body of believers. And uh, if you haven't seen those episodes of Greek matters, you can look at them. But it's pretty clear that um, there's a pretty profound unity that's taking place um and so paul has this insight he says in three four um and then this is particularized uh right here that the nations the word gentiles is nations ta ethne and then you have this listing of three things that they are they are co-heirs co-body members and co 
participants, partakers. And so this is very strong language. Each of these words begins with the preposition soon added to the front and the, the new on soon um, undergoes, undergoes a morphological change because of the abutment to the, uh, the main um, root or stem. So the new becomes a gamma. The, in this case, the new becomes a sigma. And in this case, it becomes a, a, a mu. Uh, the new becomes a mu. Uh, but there's a profound, a, something as profoundly has happened that has brought the nations into a potential relationship of Israel such that there are co-participants of the saints. Uh, Jesus has um, said that you were once excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. This commonwealth, the word there is actually politia. It's a strong political term um, to be a member of a, a, a social political entity, a citizenship, really. So it's not just commonwealth, it's citizenship. You were once excluded from that, but now in Christ, who is the Messiah King, you who were once far away have been brought near. And Jesus himself is our peace. Um, a huge claim. This is really counter-imperial because in the Roman Empire, the, um, the emperor was associated with peace. Well, you would maybe have heard of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, or the Pax August, Augustana, um, Augustea, I mean, the Pope, uh, Pax Augustea, the, the Augustan Peace. And so this uh, claim really is a strong, big claim that would have had implications for you really, what is ultimate reality? Uh, and so what is the ultimate reality that Paul has received revelation about? And it really is the work of Christ, who Jesus is. And Christ is the undergirding reality, um, which, which determines everything for us, which only makes sense given the early Christian understanding, the proclamation of Jesus as the king, um, he is the linchpin to understand everything. It seems like all of uh, Hebrew scripture was pointing forward to uh, a point of God's uh, deliverance and revelation, and that this deliverance revelation has occurred in a preliminary climactic way in the person of Jesus. And um, I think the whole life of discipleship really is is understanding who Christ is. And this uh, in Ephesians, we are really privileged to see um, that we are growing up to attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of Man. Like that is our goal. Uh, and we just need to keep conceptualizing that, how important that is for us. And so I don't know whether you're believers or not, uh, in Jesus and what 
stage or development or point in your faith. Um, I know that a lot of us have experienced hurt by the church, in the church, by church leaders. I get it. I've been there, honestly. Uh, I've not ever been ordained. I've been tempted to be ordained. But um, God, I think, has intervened and just said, no, to stay a layperson. That's okay. But um, but it's about Christ. It's not about a denomination. It's about faithfulness to him and growing up to him. And he is our model of maturity. He is the perfect or the mature person or man that we're growing up into. Um, he is the measure of maturity. This word stature means maturity, um, which, which belongs really to the fulfillment. Fullness is really fulfillment. Uh, of what it means to be a human, uh, to be flourishing as humans in this world. And so when we're looking at 425 uh, to 32, where we just left off, there's just a radical, this foundation of what's gone before in the discourse. And so I just kind of wanted to pause and just reiterate how significant that is. And particularly that... Um, there's this hard pivot away from sinful living, which is described in 4.17 to 19, the fallen Gentile world. He says, you used to live among the Gentiles in this way, which means that you're no longer really the nations because now you've been grafted in. You, you've been included into the citizenship. You're co-citizens of the saints, Paul says in chapter 2. And uh, so we no longer live that way. Rather, we learn Christ, and we've been taught in him, and we've been taught in him a threefold pattern of putting off the old self, being renewed in the spirit of the mind, which, by the way, is present infinitive, ongoingness is implied by the present infinitive. These other infinitives are aorist infinitives. So we're putting aside the old self, we're being renewed constantly, and we're putting on the new self um, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So in likeness of God. And then we come to the mother load of imperatives. And Paul is really working out a kind of an ethic. And, and these verses are structured chiastically. Uh, in the center we looked at last time is this uh, speaking and doing the good for the to, to help meet the needs of others. And this, I think, is understood in the context of being benefactors. I, I showed you last time a book <clears throat> by Bruce Winter called uh, Seek the Welfare of the City, which talks about um, how early Christians were envisioning and, and leaders were trying to encourage believers to be benefactors like little b like locally you know we should be known for our good deeds uh by our good works christians should be known for that and so that means that we speak good things we do good things with our hands so that we can share with people so that we can give grace bestow grace uh in our words and benefit with our deeds. Um, and so last time we looked at um, 
this uh, be kind to one another <clears throat> and compassionate. And uh, I liken this, um, this is really the antidote to the, the, the temptation we have <clears throat> constantly, it seems like, <laughs> to be embittered. So in verse 31, we have an escalation of bitterness, rage, anger, shouting, which is sometimes translated as brawling, but really it's shouting, and slander, along with all malice. So we're to get rid of all of this. This bitterness uh, grows, can grow in us and escalate, and we don't want that to happen. It's tempting to um, out of our fallenness, our fears, our anxiety, anxieties, our our, our um, insecurities, uh, viewing the world out of a perspective of scarcity, um, these kinds of things uh, can lead us to uh, reactions um, that are um, push us away from people and, and make us anger. And and when we're injured or when people do things to us and we feel threatened, we can get bitter. And if we give seed to that, if we nurse that, the nursing that that baby of anger or bitterness can grow. And we don't want that to grow to uh, fighting, slander, terrible things like that. The antidote to that is to understand that God in Christ has forgiven you. Okay, Just look at the pronouns. You, us, us, you, just as. So God in Christ has forgiven us. Therefore, we're able to uh, forgive ourselves. This, this each other is not a accurate enough translation. The Greek is really aoptis, which is uh, a reflexive pronoun, ourselves. <clears throat> so the basis of forgiving ourselves is just as God has forgiven us. Same verb, karizo, karizo. Um, and so sometimes the hardest thing that we can do is to, uh, that we struggle with is um, forgiving ourselves. And, and being comfortable with ourselves uh, in a sense that, you know, we recognize that God accepts us, loves us, has gifted us. Um, I'm preparing, uh, if you haven't found the, um, the podcast Prove Text, uh, there's a segment um, within Prove Text podcasting um, that I'm a part of in which I'm doing constituent marking through 1 Corinthians 12. And I just recorded about seven episodes this morning talking about the body parts and each member being important. Um, and so we really do need to have a proper esteem of ourselves. And, and really that begins with some forgive, forgiveness at times because we, we blow it, we blow it. And if we're not able to forgive ourselves, we're gonna be hard on ourselves. Well, guess what? We're gonna be hard on others. And so there's um, there's something that happens when we can properly appreciate ourselves. As God sees us, as God has forgiven us, we forgive ourselves. And this allows us then to be compassionate. Es splunk me. It allows us to be kind. And this kindness is towards one another. So track 
the pronouns. So be kind to one another. So this is reciprocal. This is reflexive. And this is personal. And this is really the ground. This personal forgiveness is the ground that allows me to forgive myself, that allows me to be compassionate towards others and to be kind towards one another. And all of this really is the antidote to the anger, to not giving way to anger. All right, so that's chapter four. Now, chapter five begins with uh, uh, an un, yeneste. This is a present active imperative from yenome, uh, I become. And uh, therefore, uh, marks distinctive development and inference. So un is a connector that marks inference and development. So, um, and really we can see how, how there's a natural transition from, you know, God forgiving us to, you know, focus of being imitators of God. Yeah. So therefore become imitators of God. And so the genitive is modifying the imitators. Um, really, we could think about what kind of genitive that is. And this is probably an objective genitive. That is, uh, be imitating God. So genitive case, the genitive case, which tutheu is, is um, has different kind of senses or functions in, based on contextual use. And in this case, if this imitation idea is like a verbal idea, which I think it, it, it entails, then that means that the genitive really is like the object of that imitation. So be imitating God be imitators of God. And this, um, this forgiveness in, in Christ uh, is part of the basis for us, uh, really the foundation, I would say, of being imitators of God. Um, yeah, so be being imitators of God. Present tense, this is an ongoing imperative. This is an ongoing need that we have uh, to be becoming uh, this imitation of God. This is really, I think, our life's process and goal, uh, to be more like God as Christ has revealed God to us. That is fundamentally important. And we're going to see the important role that Christ plays in, in uh, modeling for us what that looks like. What that looks like. So as beloved children, so as you are beloved children, this is a little tack-on clause. Uh, it's a null, uh, it's lacking a verb. Here's a null sign that means it's missing the verb, but we can easily supply it. Um, it's something like um, este, este, you are as you are beloved children. So tekna means children. Agapita is um, an adjective, which is in agreement with tekna, neuter plural, uh, nominative. Um, os is indicating like um, uh, 
as like you are. So it's interesting. Um, we we can think of os. You know, my tech, my Koine Greek grammar. I I talk about os with with numbers to indicate approximation. So approximate, but I'm resisting that kind of approximate uh, meaning he, here because I don't think that that's really what's conveyed here. You, you're kind of like beloved children. I don't think that's what it means. Um, I think it's meaning uh, as in fact you are, as as you are, um, you are this way, um, a comparison. So since, it, and really O's can almost have a sense of like a basis for comparison and basis. So um, really this this reality, this um, this statement is 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 foundational for the imitation of God. You know, uh, it's because we are beloved children that naturally we ought to be imitating our Father. You know, children are like their their parents, and they imitate them. Um, and it's out of this lovedness, this belovedness, that we can do that. So agapitos uh, indicates um, a past tense and a passive voice sense of of the idea and the idea here is agapao love put that in the past tense and passive and it means beloved and so this is what we are we are beloved children since this is what we are uh, as this basis paul is calling us to become imitators of god this may be perhaps one of the most profound verses in the Bible, honestly. The idea of imitating God is found elsewhere, uh, but not so directly stated. You know, be ye holy as I am holy. That obviously is a call to imitation. You know, I'm holy, you be holy. Um, so this, this call to be imitators of God, um, particularly this comes in the context of forgiveness in terms of forgiveness. And this is the real kicker because this forgiveness is in the context of potential hatred and escalation. And, and how important is this, this message for today where we want to fight for our rights and justify our actions that are hurtful for others. Uh, offensively hurtful. Um, yeah. So it's out of this beloved state that we are to be imitators of God. Verse two, ke, marks uh, um, continuity in the discourse. Um, walk, be walking in love. So here I'm doing the constituent marking cutting off endings, single underlining the verbs, boxing conjunctions. Uh, walk in love, be walking in love. This is present tense. So it's an ongoingness, uh, be living, be walking. And uh, you may recall that uh, I've talked about how Ephesians is laid out. Um, the thesis statement is found in second uh, verse 2, eight through 10, which says you go back to these verses, it's the thesis statement, I would argue for Ephesians. And when we look at verse 10 in particular, 
it concerns being God's uh, creation founded upon Jesus and founded upon good deeds that we should walk, live and walk in them. And so this walking theme is, is a th part of the thesis. And then chapters uh, three through, um, really chapters four through five have five walking sections. So you have four, one through 16. You've got 417 through 32, walk no longer as the nations. And then you have uh, uh, five, two. So five, two, uh, five, five, one and two begins the next walking section. Uh, there's going to be another one that begins in five, I think it's five, six through 14. And then the last one is 515 through 69. So uh, this section is the central section of walking and living. And I don't think that's accidental. This is the core of it. The core of it is walking in love as we imitate Christ and imitate God. So walk in love just as also Christ loved us, loved us. And not only did he love us, he gave himself. He gave himself. So here's the uh, direct object. It's a reflexive pronoun. He's giving us on behalf of others, on behalf of us. So he's giving himself. This is some. This is a self-sacrificial act that he does, and and he's giving himself as a sacrifice uh, for us, Jews, for Gentiles, for the nations, all of us. He gives himself for all of us to bring us together into reconcile us together to God and with one another into one body of of believers, co-heirs, co-citizens, co co-body members, co-partakers. We share together in this life of Christ that, that he offers us. And so he loves and gives, loves and gives, loves and gives himself for us. And we're called to be walking in that love. And um, it's not an easy calling. Um, as bon, Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, he calls us, come, bids us come, come follow, uh, follow me and die. Essentially, I'm not saying as eloquent as he says, but there's uh, a real sacrifice involved here. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up her cross daily, and follow me. So denying self, taking up the cross, whatever that would be in our life, a radical obedience to what God calls us to do. For Jesus, that was to go to Jerusalem, to the heart of the people of, of God of his day, to the, the political center of the Jewish world, and uh, to confront evil that was found there. Where do we find evil today that uh, is close to us that we may need to confront? Uh, to speak to truth and love to, and, and to do it in a way that is costly, that we don't do it in a way that 
uh, seeks to kill or damage, but rather is, is to uh, call things out in a way that can bring, uh, that is done in humility and meekness, but can bring about the life of God, the love of God in, in, um, among his people. You know, remember that we're called to speak the truth to one another. Um, putting aside falsehood, we are to speak truth, each one of us with his neighbor. And that neighbor, you know, that's kind of a broad term there. I mean, the doesn't mean, mean necessarily like a believer neighbor. Um, you know, so what does that speaking the truth look like? Well, that's where we need wisdom and guidance from the spirit. Um, how, when, where, and what, uh, how to do that. But Jesus did it. He loved us. He offered himself for us. He offered himself. What? How? Uh, there's twofold aspects to this as a sacrifice, an offering and sacrifice to God. As a aroma that is pleasing, a pleasing aroma. As a pleasing aroma. So basically, um, and I didn't review the the Jewish uh, sacrificial backdrop of, of the terms used here, but there is a very specific kind of sacrifice that is evoked here that Jesus is fulfilling, um, that Paul is construing Jesus' sacrifice. Um, I think there's five major kinds of sacrifices, and this, this relates to one of them specifically. Um, so you might want to do some research on that and think about the kind of sacrifice that Jesus is, um, the kind of um, pleasing aroma that that comes from the sacrifice that he offers. So there's some implications there for us to think about. I didn't have time to review that uh, today. I didn't. I forgot to do that. And I'm not going to take the time to try to <laughs> try to run that down. But yeah, he's presenting himself. Uh, he's presented himself as a sacrifice. Paul is construing the, the kind of offering that Christ is to us in a certain kind of way. So he loved and gave. Um, this idea of loving and giving um, is, is rather interesting. Um, where else does uh, do we learn about loving and giving? Well, one verse that we have probably memorized is uh, God so loved the world such that he gave. So here's loving and giving. Now, it's a different verb, but it's a cognate. It's not uh, para didomi, it's just didomi. So God loved and gave Jesus. Uh, and Paul, we can go to Galatians 2.20, um, and his utter devotion and living in Christ, and Christ living in him, and in the body, in the flesh, he uh, is living in allegiance, in, in alignment with uh, the Son of God. And the Son of God loved me and paradidomi, gave himself for me. So Paul is is speaking in first person here. This is part of the thesis statement for Galatians. He's 
he's laying himself out here as an exemplum, uh, as someone that they can follow and learn from. And this is particularly relevant in the book of Galatians because he has been slandered uh, and uh, people have come after him and have begun to distance him away from the Galatians. And so uh, there is a truly apologetic uh, nature to Galatians, even though that idea has been contested. It was initially posited by Hans Dieter Betz in his uh, seminal commentary on Galatians uh, in the Hermeneia series uh, goes back to 1980. Uh, there's been pushback in trying to re-understand it, but I am convinced that there is indeed this need that Paul has to explain himself and does so in a way for the benefit of others. And, you know, he's particularly laying himself as an example of, of how he boasts and what kinds of things he boasts about and uh, confronting those who are trying to push uh, certain Jewish practices onto converts to Christ. And, uh, and you know, he says, um, you know, don't cause me trouble. Stop it. So this is the end of the letter where he's saying, leave me alone. I bear on my body the persecution, uh, the marks of Christ. So Paul writes Galatians out of this kind of situation where, and it's kind of interesting too, that he writes with with all the brethren who are with me. So he's not a lone ranger. So this is an important kind of context to understand that Galatians is a communally written brother, written with Paul document. And it's clear as you read through the context that um, people have come after him and have needed to defame him in certain ways. And Paul has to kind of fight back for a proper understanding of himself in relation to the Galatians. And so right here, uh, Christ loved me, he says, and gave himself for me. So then we go back to Ephesians 5, 2. So I'm just kind of looking at the different places where you have this combination of loving and giving. And there's one other place, and that is in, uh, is it verse 23? Uh where Christ gave himself to um, the church. So loved the church um, and gave himself for the church. So Christ loved and gave himself up for her, 25. And this uh, action of Christ of loving again and giving is supposed to be a model for husbands, the kind of sacrificial love that husbands are to have in regard to their wives. All right, so we're at verse three. Now, at this point, there's a rather hard pivot, I think. The de indicates new development. You have a ke. So you've got pornia, de ke, akartharsia. Pasa, e pleonexia, mede onamadzesto en umin, kathos prepi 
agius, que ascrotes, que morologia e eftrapelia, auc anenken ala malon evcaristia. And then we'll, we'll go on from there. Okay, now, now what begins to happen here is you have lists, lists of vices. And uh, these are kind of startling, really. You know, why this hard pivot from love to these vices? Why this, this pivot? Um, and what connection is there between love and sacrifice and cult imagery to pornea and uncleanness and greed? You know, so Paul says, moreover, the main verb is let it, neither let it be named among you. Uh, sexual morality un and, un and all uncleanness or greed. Neither be named among you as is fitting for the saints. As is fitting for the saints. Um, okay. Well, what do these words have in common? Pornia, acartharsia, pleonexia. Well, they have in common pagan temple environment. Pornia. Uncleanness. Idols are unclean. And in these temples, it was it was uh, almost a common notion trope of stealing people would come in and and steal things left at the altar and that kind of thing so i think that um the idea of sexual morality it seems to come out of nowhere this idea of idolatry and uncleanness seems to come out of nowhere but it really doesn't because paul is talking about love and temple cultic ideas that Christ loves and gives himself in this kind of cultic way. And I think that this cultic example of Christ and love needs to be clarified because love, of course, can mean different things to different people. And cultic activity in a pagan context was often associated with uncleanness and sexual immorality. And Paul says, None of that is in play here. None of it. So he's just evoked love and cultic offering of oneself. And, and that is uh, opening up a network of ideas socially. And he says, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go to immorality or uncleanness. These are not to be named among God's people. You're not to be doing this kind of thing at all. Uh, let this not even be named. So naming has to do with like publicity and and uh, uh, these are dishonorable things. Um, and Paul, you know, he has something against sexual immorality, actually. If we go to other letters of Paul, he targets it pretty directly. So in 1 Thessalonians, he spends a lot of time kind of setting up his main argument and getting ready for it. 
And I think the thesis statement of, uh, of 1 Thessalonians is actually in 3.11 to 13. Um, that What that means is that chapters 1 and 2 is, a, and really the first part of chapter 3 is a long narrative. Um, and we could look at Thessalonians. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll go there for the reading group next. I don't know. Um, it's a great text. But when his argument really gets going, one of the first things that he focuses in on is knowing the will of God. And what is the will of God? It's your sanctification. God actually wants us to be holy. Holy. This is the will of God. You know, we wonder sometimes what God's will is for my life. People will be presented with that. It's like, I don't know what God's will is for my life. Should I do this or should I do that? We're missing the boat if we if we really claim to not be knowing what God's will is. God's will is actually very clear. We are called to holiness. We are called to Christ-likeness. And particularly, what does that look like here? When Paul is defining what God's will is, he's saying, quite frankly, it's it's sanctification. And what does that look like, particularly? Abstaining from sexual immorality. I mean, this is such a plague in our cultures today. It's just not even funny, honestly. And I have a lot to repent of. Some of the stuff is subtle. You know, we're just clicks away from things, literally clicks away. And, and you're not, you know, Facebook isn't safe at all. Uh, marketplace is not safe. You know, there's like images there. And you're like, okay, what am I going to do with that? And, and so we're just constantly uh, barraged with temptations to indulge in sexual, sexual immorality, certain kinds of uh, pornographic images or whatever in relationships. I mean, it's, it's awful. Um, I heard recently one of my students, um, just a church is just being devastated by serial adulteries happening inside the church just heartbreaking heartbreaking um how does a community recover from that when there's just this uh, spirit of adultery just unleashed uh in, in ways that people just giving into it um this is important uh i could take you to different passages for example first corinthians uh five now what's so significant about this is that in context, Paul has been spending four chapters to reestablish his authority in the community. And, um, you know, he calls them to be imitators of me. We're talking about imitation in chapter 11. He'll say, be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. You know, so again, Paul is, is, is writing in a context where he's being criticized. And he's saying, look, if you're criticizing me, you got a problem um, because actually I'm following Christ. And so if you're ashamed of me, if, if because I work with my hands doing menial labor, you Corinthians, if you're ashamed of me, then you need a readjustment of understanding the nature of the gospel. And so first Corinthians, if you've ever studied it, the first four chapters are are a reset of the worldview uh, related to the gospel and the nature of God's wisdom and the revelation of Jesus. Uh, and then in chapter four, he kind of pops up and starts talking about leadership and how you evaluate leaders. 
and himself and Apollos and this kind of thing. And it kind of ends with this kind of, you know, imitate me. And, you know, I'm going to be coming to you. I'm your, you have many teachers or tutors, but only one father, that's me. So he's reestablishing his, the worldview for the Corinthians and his authority in the community. And what's the first thing that he does once that is established? He has to confront Pornia, Pornia. Um, and so, yes, this is an important topic in Paul. Uh, it's so important that even in Ephesians, as he's talking about imitating God uh, and the sacrifice of Christ and love, that he has to cor be corrective. And um, I think this makes sense when you think about paganism and, and their God folder, their understanding of God and the gods often led them into sexual immorality into acts that are degrading of the human body. And we can see this same kind of, of movement in, in Romans 1, where Paul argues that God's wrath is being revealed, present tense, now, uh, in his day. It was being revealed against ungodly and unrighteous individuals who gave up a proper worship of God uh, to worship the creation. And that's that's our problem, okay? We're, we struggle with idolatry. And relationships can be idolatrous. We can worship human relationships over against the one true God. And uh, when we become creaturely focused and worshiping of creation, we uh, open ourselves to be uh, degraded in our thinking, in our in our vices, in our associations, in our living. And that's what Paul describes here. Um, God basically lets us go. Like if we don't want to pay attention to God, he doesn't force himself on us. He lets us go. And that's that's part of what love does, is it um it doesn't control. That's the nature of love, is it's freely given. And it freely woos. I mean, what is love if it's forced? What is love if it's compelled in a way that is doesn't leave an option? Um, if it isn't calling for a free response that is empowering and enabling. And that's what God's love is for us. But he does warn against sexual immorality and uncleanness and idolatry. And greed, you know, that's part of, partly why we, uh, we, out of a sense of scarcity, we want to grab for things. And, and so he says, these are improper for the saints. Yeah, so this passage is really intriguing for me. The abutment of love and Christ's offering of sacrifice in a cultic way. And then Paul going to talk about vices that are often associated with pagan worship, immorality, uncleanness, and greed. Greed. And I think we could think of greed not just as only like stealing things from the temple, but also, you know, what is it that's driving people to worship the gods? Uh, it can be fear-based, but it can also be, uh, you know, we don't want their punishment, so we're trying to be appeased. But a lot of times people are wanting stuff. 
They're trying to be well connected to the divinity so they can get stuff. And um, that that uh, that it is wrong, that kind of greed and trying to appease the gods to get them to give stuff to us, to get blessing. And, you know, we've got to be careful in our own thinking and relating to God that it's not magical, that it's not pagan, really, that we're just seeing God as a dispenser of good things for us. Um, and that can be just such a wrong focus. So we have to be saints. We're called to be saints, to be holy, to be other. We're not to be caught up with uh, shameful, foolish, and, and a, a kind of joking uh, manner. Um, this word joking is rather interesting. Um, it doesn't need to be negative. It literally means like a good turn. And I don't know if you've been around people, I, I remember, um, who are really funny. And often that humor comes by turning things in the conversation in clever ways. Um, and I don't think there's a problem with that. So he's not condemning just humor in general. But in this context, we're obviously dealing with uh, foolish talking and, and shameful kinds of things. Um, I remember going camping with uh, fathers. It was a father's camping trip with our kids. And we're just kind of on this, this guy's property out in Kentucky. We're finding crayfish and eating them. We're shooting some guns. We're doing some fishing. We're just having a great time. But I just remember this one, one dad. I'm, I'm not friends with him anymore. He lives in the community. But he was just so funny. The whole it just made the trip so so enjoyable that you know he would keep interjecting comments made earlier into our conversation. It was just it just made it so fun. Um, and so he's not condemning humor, but he's condemning a kind of joking that is uh, shameful and foolish. And um, you know, I used to work at a hog farm. Uh, when I was a undergraduate student transitioning into graduate school, and uh, it was a crass environment. I mean, when I first started working there, the break time consisted of uh, the guys opening up porn magazines. They were just kind of laying around, and I'm sitting there as a Christian, and these guys are married, and I'm just like, you know, what is this about, guys? You know, and so I developed a relationship with these guys. It was interesting to see the transformation over a period of a half a year to a year where uh, at break times, we began playing Monopoly. <laughs> we began playing cards. Uh, and eventually, I mean, we were having fun with each other. I mean, not just depressing looking at pornography. I mean, we were engaging each other in conversation and laughter and having a good time. Eventually, the feed mill guys, they worked about a mile away on the farm. They would come down in their feed mill truck and we'd all be wearing our, our boots and we'd, we'd play football. I mean, this is these are guys, I mean, we were working hard. Uh, they're throwing around, we're throwing around big bags of feed. And for lunchtime, they'd drive down and we'd, we would sweat our, our tails off playing football. We just had so much fun, but it was it was such a transformation. You know, but in in some of these work environments, it can be really degrading and shameful. And um, you know, I think this is the kind of joking that's envisioned here. 
is uh, a joking that comes out of uh, really shamefulness. And, and there's a lot of crassness and jokes made about that. Now, these things are not fitting, Paul says, which are not fitting. But what is fitting? But more, or rather, what should we do? What is really the antidote to these kinds of things? It's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the antidote to immorality, greed, uncleanness, shamefulness, foolishness, foolish talk. And, and sometimes there's often like a pessimistic attitude towards life that can kind of a spirit of ungratefulness uh, is under underlying it. The antidote to that is Thanksgiving, Eucharistia, Eucharistia. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm writing commentary in Ephesians and I haven't filled it all out yet, but I suspect that this Eucharistia, particularly because we're in this cultic context, I just can't help but think that maybe this Eucharistia maybe has to deal or concern with, uh, the Eucharist, uh, the breaking of bread uh, and the pouring out of the cup, um, that this isn't maybe a shorthand for the Thanksgiving, the great Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving of Christ. Um, yeah, I have some work to do to demonstrate that, but I suspect giving the cultic sacrificial context of Christ offering himself that in fact that is maybe informing what the Thanksgiving is there. So I know people say, oh, that's anachronistic. That didn't get developed till later. But I suspect that that may be true. All right. Four. Uh, and I think we can finish this up uh, just at least through verse five. We'll try to do a little bit more. For this, know this. For know this. Okay. The gar is strengthening. The tuto is um, the direct object. And then you have a really interesting construction. This iste is actually a, an imperative form of the verb for knowing. So ista is from ida. Uh, Ida means I know. It's a perfect tense imperative form. I know it's kind of a weird form, but Ida is kind of a weird verb. Um, so yeah, this is an imperative form from Ida for know this. And then you have a participle of knowing that is directly abutted and following the verb of knowing. And uh, this is a circumstantial participle. And in, in my Kine Greek grammar, I talk about different functions of circumstantial participles, depending on whether they're fronted or post-position, prepositioned or post-position. This one is post-position and it's directly abutted. And this is what would be called redundant, a redundant participle. Typically we see this with verbs of saying, no knowing, or, or say saying, he said saying, we see this in the gospels, he said uh, legon, uh, the participle legon afterwards. But 
I found instances of doing, do doing. We just saw this up above, I believe, work working. There it is, work working. That's an abutted post-nuclear participle. Um, and so here's one with knowing, know this, knowing. This is for stress. There is a lot of stress on this. Um, it's stress because this is an odd form of the verb uh, to know, plus it's perfect tense imperative. It's really odd, unusual, unique. Plus it has redundancy with this uh, uh, post-nuclear participle um, overlapping and semantic domain. Plus the tuto is um, forward pointing. It's This is a forward pointing construction in which the, the target, the content of the this is found in what follows. So there's three ways, or really four probably, because it's a command form. It is uh, forward pointing. It's an odd, unusual, perfect tense uh, imperative form. Plus it has a redundant uh, participle, circumstance participle. So there's four ways that this is a really ramped up construction that is focusing on, on what Paul is calling them to know. Plus, I'll say there's a fifth way <laughs> that this is stressed, is that um, it's a meta comment. It's a meta comment. Like a meta comment is when you become self-reflective about the, the communicative act. He doesn't need to set this up this way. So he is really stressing this. I mean, I can't say this enough that he's really stressing the content of this. And then I would say it's it's stressed in a, a sixth way by way of its content, that the content itself is very prominent because it deals with ultimate reality. Um, and so what is this verse saying? Every fornicator or unclean person or uh, greedy, covetous person, which, by the way, he says is a form of idolatry. This takes us back to Romans 1, where we were looking at a little bit later or earlier, um, that every fornicator, unclean person, or greedy person does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God, and of Christ and God, has no inheritance. So there's something that disinherits one innately, inherently, uh, from inheritance. These things that Paul lists here prohibit one from inheriting, having an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And uh, that's quite uh, startling to think about. Um, these things, being immoral, being an immoral person, unclean, greedy, being idolatrous, these things prohibit you from having an inheritance in this kingdom. So uh, why is that? Well, we can just say because God says so. I mean, there's something that could be true about that. Uh God is a holy God, um, and if he wants to set up things a certain way, uh, he certainly has the right to do that. Um, but I think 
we could think about just a little bit more too that um, these these uh, subjects are um, uh, indicate that the sin. So we're not talking about people who who struggle with temptation. We're not talking about people who have fallings into these things and repent. We're talking about people who are identified by their sin. They become identified with these such that they can be named as them. The sin takes them over such that they are sexually immoral. Not that they have acted that way or struggle with it, but that they become that, that they are in fact unclean, that they are in fact greedy uh, inherently. This, this greed uh, takes them over. Such people do not have an inheritance awaiting them in the future kingdom of God and Christ, the kingdom of Christ and God. And I think there's um, there's an implication here that, that Christ is affirmed as God precisely at this point. God and Christ, the, the word Christ and God share the same article, and so there's a, there's a rule um, I think it's called, is it Caldwell's rule um, that talks about when the article is shared by a non, uh, by, by, by uh, not named, like a personal names, uh, when they're shared by uh, noun entities. And I don't think Christ is a name. I think it's a role uh, and God is a, a noun. And I think that the rule applies here. This is an affirmation that Christ is, in fact, God. The kingdom of Christ, even God. Yeah, so that's something kind of to end with there, just to kind of think about uh, what is implied by the construction here, that Christ is being affirmed as God. So when two, two nouns that are not personal names share an article, and they're singular, that they are in fact the same, uh, it's the same person. So uh, yeah, well, I'll end with that. Paul really wants to stress this. There are consequences for letting sin so invade us that we become identified with that sin. That is a very dangerous thing where sin takes us over. And of course it always does want to. It's never satisfied with a little bit of us. It tries to hook us all the way in. And if we're in that state, we have no inheritance. So, um, all right. Well, I think we're over time. And uh, thanks for listening. Interested in growing your ancient language skills, but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glow's House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glowsahouse.com today. Glow's House language resources for the global community.